name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and be with us this day. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten our minds, to open up our hearts, to receive you this day anew. We continue to lift up in prayer, Father Martin. We ask you, Lord, for your healing hand to be upon him, for your consolation to be with him this day, and that both he and us would be open to your presence here with us. Amen. This is the re- a reading from the first book of Kings. Elijah came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Before I was a Franciscan, I spent a few years, when I was discerning my vocation in in college, I spent a lot of time with the Trappist monks. You might be familiar with them. Thomas Merton's probably the most uh, famous Trappist, but I was discerning with this monastery in upstate New York, the Abbey of the Genesee, but also the one in Massachusetts, uh, in Spencer, Massachusetts. And one weekend I was there for, it was their first ever come and see vocations weekend where they let a few men who were discerning actually come and stay in the monastery with the monks. Because before then, we'd have to stay in the retreat house. But we got this, it was this first time they ever did this. And so me and about four other men got to spend the weekend really with the monks in the monastery. And after about the third day, I was feeling a little bit insecure about my vocation. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to show these monks just how serious I am. (laughs) I need to show these monks how holy I think I am. (laughs) 
as you can tell, I wasn't very mature in many things. But every morning when I was there, the bell would ring at 3.15 in the morning because they had to be in uh, church for vigils at 3.30 in the morning. So as I was laying down to bed one night, I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to show these monks how serious I am. I was going to be in that chapel, in that church, before anyone got there. And when they got there and they saw this young 20-year-old man, they would take me seriously. And so the next morning, my, I set my alarm for 3 o'clock, jumped out of bed, got myself ready. I was in the church at about 10 after 3. And 3.15, that you hear the bells of the monastery begin to go off. I sort of smiled to myself, thinking how great I was. And all of a sudden, the lights sort of became to, started to come on in the monastery. And sort of started with these dim lights in the back of the church, and then some that would kind of shine down on the altar. And as I sort of adjusted my eyes to the light, because it was, it was pitch black, I began to notice that there was these figures kind of scattered throughout the church. And they were all just kind of sitting in corners, kind of facing uh, the tabernacle, facing the altar. And as my eyes adjusted even more, I began to realize, wait a minute, half the community is already in the church. And no one came into that church when I was there early, because you would have heard them come. And as all the lights came on, about half the community got up from where they were sitting in their various places and sort of met in the choir for us to begin uh, chanting the psalms. And I realized, first of all, what a fool I was. But second of all, that these monks were already there praying quietly before they even had to be in church. And that day, I was, I was really reflecting on, you know, what were they doing sitting there? And I love that reading that I read from, from 1 Kings, because like Elijah, these monks were listening to God, or at least they were trying to listen to God in silence, who was not in the wind, who was not in the earthquake or the fire, but in a still, small voice. If you think about it, what do they, or what do we even, need to do that? And I'd say, well, for one, obviously, it's the grace of God that's leading us, that's leading them, that even creates this desire in us for prayer for silence, for silent prayer. But those monks, and even us, had to make a decision in the depths of their hearts not to be anxious about many things. And you might ask, well, what could a monk possibly be anxious about? Just because you put a robe on you still have human nature. And you'd be amazed at the things you could be anxious about when there seems to be nothing to be anxious about. But they needed to make a decision to set aside 
this time to be quiet, to be open, and to be receptive to God, who so desperately wants to give himself to us. See, I realized that morning that these monks had it right. They were receiving the gift of God. And I was trying to force the gift of God. And what these monks taught me so profoundly was that real silence is not just an emptiness, not just laziness, but that real silence reveals to us a presence, the presence of God. And you know, in life, there are, there are, of course, so many different expressions of silence. There is the, the silence of, of nature. There can be the silence that is a bit awkward, maybe when we don't know what to say to somebody. Maybe we've just met somebody, we're not sure what to say. There can be also the, the silence of anger. You could be having lunch with someone, maybe a spouse, and you could be so mad at someone that you just can't talk, that there's a silence there. There's the silence that oftentimes I see in couples who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years. There's not a need to say a lot. You might say, well, that's why they've been married for so long. (laughs) But all of these expressions of silence, if you think about it, are conditional, meaning that they are, they're based upon something else, right? Nature is silent because Mountains don't talk, right? Trees don't talk. The awkwardness of a conversation is based upon the condition that I don't really know this person, so there's a part of me that's going to hold back and not reveal myself yet. But the silence that we really attend to in silent prayer is, is not conditional. But I would say that it's reverential, meaning that it is a form of worship. The silence that we attend to in silent prayer is reverential. It is a form of worship. Because, as we've heard earlier from that reading, God is ultimately beyond all of our words and all of our language and all of our concepts. As good and as important as all of those things are. And when we come into the presence of God, we recognize quickly really the poverty of our words. 
And in a mysterious way, it is silence that best expresses who God is. Especially when we understand it as this reverential silence. You know, if you think about someone in your life who you love, how do you articulate that? It's difficult, isn't it? A couple months ago, I did a wedding for two of my friends in Louisiana, and I was meeting with them just individually and then together, and I asked each one of them, why do you love Daniel? I asked Daniel, why do you love Ellen? And it was so interesting to me because they were, it, you would have thought I asked them this like impossible math problem. They weren't able to really, well, uh, she has a nice smile, you know, or he's sweet. And certainly all those things were true, but it was so interesting because it's not that they didn't love each other, but the truth is that they loved each other so much, they weren't able to articulate it clearly. And that's really, I think, our expression in silent prayer. In one of St. John of the Cross's letters, he says, our greatest need is to be silent before God. Why is that our greatest need? And I think the answer is because the biggest obstacle to God is our overactive minds. Right? We are constantly entertaining. We are constantly giving life to our fears, to our insecurities, to our self-obsession. And the problem is we equate this with reality. We over-identify with our feelings or what other people may have told, said about us, maybe when we were growing up or even now. And we honestly think, that's the person I am. And the truth is, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. And when we equate all of this with reality, what we are doing is immersing ourselves in illusion. God's presence, God's love, is reality. And when we are not living, when we are not breathing in that reality, we're not living in reality. We're living somewhere else. And so if all of this is true, if silence can reveal to us the presence of God more deeply in our life, then simply spending time in silence each day, what we are doing here this weekend, with the intention of opening up to God, can lead us to such mysterious, 
and profound depths in our relationship with God. Right? When we are sitting here in times of prayer, the whole point of a word is to open our hearts, to quiet our minds to the deeper reality of God and His presence. Robert Cardinal Sarah, one of the uh, cardinals from Africa, says that prayer ultimately consists of being silent so as to listen to God. And then he says, to pray is to be able to be quiet for a long time because we are often deaf and distracted by our own words. What a beautiful quote on prayer. And so, what does this look like? You know, on the most basic level, if you're a normal human being, when we sit down and try to be quiet, there are distractions of all kinds. But beneath that, in our hearts, ideally, there should be this longing, this desire, this openness, this humility for God himself. Not necessarily for an experience of God, not necessarily for a new insight about God or myself, as wonderful and beautiful as they can be, but for God himself. And this is why in the context of of silent prayer, the best way to understand it is that it is relationship, that it is intimate relationship with God. You know, in a very real way, silent prayer is like standing naked before God. And in this form of prayer, words are few. There's a great line from a, a Japanese Carmelite by the name of Father Augustine Okumura, I think. <laughs> and in his book, one of his books on prayer, I think it's called Awakening to Prayer, he says, At the extremity of prayer, at its most extreme place, words vanish. And then he says, should words suddenly arise in prayer, we must regard them as fruits of love that send us back to silence. A few months ago, I was in Montana doing some preaching. And when I was in Montana, I met this very extraordinary person. 
And this woman's name was Suzanne. And Suzanne had been in a active religious community for about 15 years. She was a, a sister. And in a very good community, she was doing great things, living a life of prayer. But all of a sudden, this deeper desire in her own heart just sort of took over. This desire for solitude, this desire for silence. And it became so strong, and she couldn't deny it anymore. She ended up leaving her community, which, as you can imagine, could be very painful. And she left her community not exactly knowing what she was going to do. She had been a sister for many, many years. But she felt that God was calling her to live this extreme life that's known as an anchoress. And it's not a very popular vocation, but yeah. in fact, she might be the only one who is an But in the Middle Ages especially, there was maybe a couple more anchoresses than there are now. But basically what an anchoress was, it was someone who literally lived in a room that was next to a church and there was a little window in the room where they could see mass and they could receive communion. And basically their whole life, their whole day was a day of prayer. Their whole life was a life of prayer and solitude. Now the most famous one is is Julian of Norwich. I saw one of her, her books back there. But she had this vocation of an anchoress. And when I was speaking with her, she was trying to figure out, how, do you, how does one live like this in the 21st century? And it was, what was so beautiful about my conversation with her is I realized every time she, she had me look over this rule for life that she was writing, that the bishop actually blessed and she was going to make vows under his guidance and everything. And she had me look over her rule. And what was so beautiful was that every time she talked about prayer, she always described it as being with him. And I basically said to her, I said, what, what, are you, what do you want to do? She said, I just want to be with him. I just want to be with him all day. How beautiful, right? And when one is being with somebody most of the time, most of the time, it's silent. Certainly there's conversation, but when you're really with somebody all the time, probably the preferred way of communication is silence. And Jesus, of course, is our example of this. How does Jesus begin his ministry? Not by going out and preaching to the multitudes. But after his baptism, what does he do? He goes into the desert to spend 40 days in the wilderness. Yes, to be tempted by the devil. And he goes to the wilderness, to the desert, that place where Israel was unfaithful to God where Israel constantly forgot God. Jesus goes into the desert 
to be faithful to the Father, to be silent before the Father, to be alone with the Father. Jesus, who tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that when we pray, that we should not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He says, because they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus, who before he chooses the twelve disciples, the Gospel of Luke says that he went out into the hills to pray all night, and he continued in prayer to God. What did that prayer look like? Certainly there was conversation, but on a deeper level, there was this longing. There was this desire. There was this silence. Jesus, who in the parable, you remember, of the Pharisees and the tax collector, says that the tax collector, the unrighteous person, who stands in the back of the temple and does not even lift his eyes to heaven, but simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that this man, with his few words, but with his tremendous openness and humility, that this is the one who goes home justified, while the religious person makes a fool of himself. And so, what is the implication here? It's simply that prayer is not just speaking to God or thinking about God, as important and as necessary as that is. But that real prayer is a way of being with God. Simply being with God. And perhaps the most profound way to be with God or another person is in silence with little or no words. Again, Father Augustine says that the most perfect prayer breathes in a heart that remains silent before God and knows how to listen to God. And herein, I believe, lies the invitation, really, of silent prayer. We are disposing ourselves to listen to God. As we will discover over time, if we haven't already, we can be best heard in silence. Where I live in Monticello, New York, it's about two hours north of the city, but about another hour north of where I live is a monastery of nuns. It's called the Monastery of Bethlehem. And these nuns are 
almost like Carthusians. And if you're familiar with Carthusians, they're really the strictest religious order in the church. They don't, the only time they talk is on Sunday. And they go for a walk for about an hour, and they take turns talking with one another for about 10 minutes. And so their life is a life of extreme silence and solitude. They are perched way up in the mountains. And for this past year, they haven't had a chaplain, and so my, I've been going up there a lot to help them, to say Mass for them, and, and to just spend time in their hermitages up there. And the last time that I was there, a few weeks ago, there was a, a priest there who was on retreat. And we were in the sacristy, vesting for Mass one morning. The sisters were chanting uh, the Psalms, and we were there getting ready, and we were just sort of standing there, this priest and I, who I, I didn't know, but just simply said hello to him, and we were just standing there in silence, waiting for our cue from the sisters to come in and to begin Mass. And I think maybe about after two minutes of just standing there in silence, this priest looks over at me, and he says to me, he says, wow, God is really loud up here. <laughs> and I started laughing so hard, I thought I was going to get kicked out of that monastery. <laughs> because I loved the irony of that. In this place of total silence, that anyone, God, could be loud in this place, I thought was so funny, but also so profound. Because that's how profound silence can be when we're really opened up to God. Because remember, there's many forms of silence that can be negative. But a silence that is opened up to God is profound. And at first, this silence before God can be extremely awkward for us. And we might think, and maybe other people will say to us, that we are wasting our time. Why don't you do something? Maybe silence is painful for us because it reveals to us our own poverty. Maybe we have put so much value in doing that simply being silent and doing nothing creates a sort of crisis in my life. Who am I? I've identified myself all my life with what I do. And now, here I am. Who am I? And we might ask the question, well, what, what is the purpose of all of this? Why does God allow this experience? Right? If we're trying to open ourselves to God, and I'll talk more about this later this afternoon, but why does God allow this, this difficulty, this, this tension? And I believe that God allows that because he wants us simply to discover that God, that he is there, patiently waiting in the silence, beneath our fears, beneath our awkwardness, 
beneath our sins, beneath our doubt, beneath everything that we are experiencing so that we can realize that He and He alone is our true foundation, that He is our strength and our life, and that, thank God, we are not our thoughts. We are not our fears. We are not our anxieties. Can I get an amen to that one? (laughs) But to discover something more beautiful, that we are children of God, loved from all eternity, despite our wounds, despite our brokenness. And this is the message I believe that God wants us to hear. Only we can be so brave as to sit in silence before God, to allow Him to love us, to open myself more deeply each time we come to pray to His unfathomable love, because it's that love that ultimately heals us, creates community, and gives us new life. Amen.